Broadcasting live from Mima's room, this is The Monstrous Feminine, the podcast where horrible humans talk about horror. My name is Zeba, and I'm joined by my pop idols, Louisa and Taya. And this month, we're talking about femcel films. We will be covering the 1997 psychological anime Perfect Blue, directed by Satoshi Kon, the 2014 drama and thriller Gone Girl, directed by David Fincher, and the 2019 psychological thriller Ma, directed by Tate Taylor. Mila is off sick this episode, but she'll be back soon. Before we get into the film, go ahead and follow us on Spotify, YouTube, or the Apple Podcasts app. You can find all of our links on our Instagram at the Monstrous Feminine Podcast. In Perfect Blue, pop idol turned actress Mima struggles with her recent career transition. Her male agent, Tadakoro, had convinced the singer to give up her J pop group, Cham, for a small role in a murder mystery TV series called Double Bind. Much to the concern of Mima's manager, Rumi, a former pop idol herself. Tadakoro convinces the writer to give Mima a bigger role, but it involves a graphic rape scene. Mima complies for the sake of progressing her career, but this decision has drastic consequences on her mental health and self-image. At the same time, Mima is being stalked by a man called Mimania, and she soon discovers an internet blog site called Mima's Room, which chronicles Mima's daily thoughts in the first person with disturbing accuracy. Mima develops a psychosis, and she soon loses the ability to distinguish between the plot of the show and reality as real-life murders of key male figures in Mima's life start to turn up. May 12th, I was impressed with Eddie Ochiai's performance in Double Bind. She becomes another person when the camera is rolling. Where did this come from? How do they know so much? Excuse me, who are you? Excuse me, who are you? I thought we should just go over what femcel means as a term. And to that end, I watched a what I thought was a really good kind of summary overview video of like femcel as a term. And it was by Mina Lay. And her video is called Toxic Femininity. What's up with girl bloggers, female manipulators and femcels? And she kind of goes through like the roots of it, which started with incels, meaning involuntary celibate. We all know that. And that originated which I didn't know as like an online forum created by actually a queer woman I think who um wanted a space to talk about like involuntary celibacy but then like the blog died down and it got overtaken with you know men who had repressed like misogynistic urges and then later became actual violent urges against women because they weren't having sex so that was kind of how incel became a thing but there was also fem cells later on who believed they couldn't have sex because of their looks or personality. But for the most part, it was mostly harmless and nonviolent. But then, and she cites this article by Roshan Lanigan for ID about the modern fem cell. I'm going to quote here. The social media fem cells of today use the term less as an indicator of how much sex they're unable to have and more as a way to express their personality traits that are perceived as pathetic or manipulative or toxic in some way. They do so unapologetically, romanticizing these stereotypical fem cell quote unquote traits in the process. While fem cells have existed on Reddit since 2012, and on the internet since 2004, new fem selves have flourished on popular social media platforms where it can be communicated not through tortured posts about being overlooked by men and self-hatred, but rather through a post-ironic self-conscious embrace of aesthetic feminine toxicity. It's not fem cell for these women, it's fem cell core. And then Mina Lay like talks about how this is tied to consumerism and trend cycles, like the kind of aestheticization of mental illness and consumerism kind of behind the sad girl era, Lana Del Rey, there's skins, there's girl interrupted. And it's this romanticization of messiness and like rejecting all the pressures of perfection for like women in society and becoming absolutely feral. So that's the kind of brief overview of like, how femcel evolved to become a kind of kind of shallow or superficial trend. Mina Lay also quotes Aurora Muir, who wrote on Grain of Salt Mag and pointed out that there is a kind of racial blindness to this kind of femcel core. I'm not quoting here, I'm just kind of paraphrasing, but it has a kind of apathy, political apathy that is actually quite dangerous 
it moves towards a kind of self-centeredness. If we're looking at books like My Year of Rest and Relaxation, it's like becoming absolutely like bitter and it moves people away from ideas of like community and love, which would be more beneficial towards reinventing society to be more equal for women. So that's the kind of overview of femcel as a term, um, as I think it was pretty usefully explained. And I think Mina Leigh had some good source material that gives a very good overview. Well, I had not heard it before, actually, but I definitely know what it is. I had never like heard the term. And I think when I heard it, I was like, you know, thinking about all the movies that we had categorized under this category because I only know what an incel is and I know it in like... I don't know. I think an incel actually has a very different definition and source and like expression online than a femcel. So I really do appreciate that definition. Now everything is clicking. I'm like, oh, that girl. I know that girl. I I know her in fiction and in real life. And I struggle. I struggle with it because I see why people are empowered by embracing like the unhingedness the unruliness the man-hating I get it like I hear you girl but you're right it does like always ends up in a toxic place and in a I mean in in the case of horror movies a violent place but I think there is something satisfying and we've said this with a lot of movies where we're like revenge fantasy is so satisfying to watch I'm 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 rooting for them in fiction I, I root for them in real life I don't think I could and that's where I don't know. Maybe maybe that's why it's fun to watch films like this for like for women to watch films like this because you can like get your feelings out in 2 hours, 90 minutes or whatever and like oh wouldn't it be fun to get back at all the people who make me feel like a shit wild animal and then you get to stop. But I don't think that those behaviors translate into real life very well. I should actually quote Aurora Muir. They put it really well. And it says, to aestheticize and justify an action associated with extremely poor mental health and to idolize characters who categorically treat family and friends with disdain and self-centeredness will only cause the spread of such damaging behavior and mentality. It would be far from an exaggeration to suggest that apathy and docility are built-in components not only of TikTok and the internet, but also of capitalism and patriarchy as a whole. And I think that puts it really well in the sense that Anything when taken too far has like political repercussions, right? Like I think there's power in reclaiming sexist tropes that have been thrown against you, but also in embodying them, you are perpetuating them. And that's a problem, even if it's done in a kind of ironic way, and it's a self-aware way, it still can have damaging consequences. Much like incels, many people who identify as femcels wear the label like a, a badge of honor or something that they openly acknowledge and not as something that they are unaware that they are. I think there's like a sense of belonging and feeling like you're not the only person who feels a certain way, even if it is a very negative emotion. However, I don't necessarily see the appeal. As we know, I love the movie Gone Girl, but. I'm not like a a person who's deeply into true crime or who can root on any sort of like violence against any person in general, regardless of gender, race, sexuality, anything, political affiliation. So I I don't know. (laughs) I struggle with this type of self-cultures online, but I'm also not on a lot of websites that have a lot of this ideology on it. I'm not on Twitter or TikTok or Reddit or anything. I think there's something really insidious about it when it mixes with consumerist trend cycles. Like, like that's the problem, right? Like when it becomes not just like an internet meme, but then becomes like an identity and something that you need to perpetuate and like almost like you said, wear as a badge of honor. Like the fact that internet subcultures encourage identity making in such a way that is a bit all-consuming, and I mean that literally, but also like economically, is what becomes a bit dangerous about that. To me, this is like a chicken or egg situation. Like, I think that there are women who behaved in these ways before aestheticization of it, but I think that the, the whatever, sad girl, femme cell, whatever you want to call it, 
when you see that romanticized, it justifies the way that they're already feeling as a result of patriarchy, capitalism, like all the things that make you feel like shit. Okay, fine. But like, it feels like trying to be like self-love. Like it it feels like a twisted form of like, I'm going to love myself exactly the way I am. And even if the way that I am is bitter and hateful and, you know, toxic or manipulative, like I still love me. It's all justified because, you know, revenge fantasy. It's taking subversion and like kind of twisting it, isn't it? Like you're not necessarily being subversive. You're, or maybe you are, but you're also being part of the problem. I think there's, with incels, they only hate women mainly. But I think with Femcell, something that I find very fascinating, mainly in the context of the movie Gone Girl and also just the way I've seen trends online, is that there also seems to be like this policing of other women and hatred towards women who do fit into a certain beauty standard or behave a certain way. Like the amount of people who use the term pick me girl incorrectly online for like any woman who is getting a slither of male attention or eating a slice of pizza is crazy. But there also seems to be like the replacement thing that Zabe and I talked about on the previous episode that is also kind of transphobic in a way because I think there tends to be like this ingrained thing of women don't have to perform femininity and then being angry towards anyone who they deem as performing femininity or wearing makeup or giving in to the male gaze in a way. And so it tends to be like this anger towards other women and towards trans women or anyone who they deem to be drawing attention or replacing them in a way. It's anger. And I feel like there's jealousy rooted in it too. Like you you think that you, a woman deserve the attention of man before who you view as not womanly or like, you know, people who are quote unquote performing for men. I mean, pizza is good, and so are burgers and chili dogs. Everyone's not doing it because they want some man's attention. But I think one thing in me and LA's video as well that I liked was, um, or it is ironic because they'll say, like, I'm not like other girls, which is kind of the thing that they were trying to, like, make fun of. But in essence, they almost perpetuate, like, that idea. Um, do you know what I mean? Like, they're trying to embody, they're ultimately trying to embody like not conforming to femininity but in a way they almost do that so hard and so like much that they they perpetuate the I'm not like other girls stereotype by doing that so then the girls who are quote-unquote like other girls or like stereotypically feminine things um are like outcasts but as a term to describe these films I thought it was funny and that we should do it but this is a good disclaimer about what this term means and implies about our society I think there's multiple definitions of femcel and like there's the newer version that comes from like the Gen Z embracing of like sad culture, girl culture and Lam Del Rey. There's also like the one that's more like traditional femcel that is like genuine man hating and stuff. The films that we've chosen are films that like femcels, modern femcels have like deemed femcel, which is why I'm kind of viewing it from a modern femcel gaze of like the more recent social media aesthetic of it. The Monstrous Feminine is on YouTube, so please go subscribe and comment. If you do engage with our content, you might just get a shout out, and our next episode is our Witch of the Week. This episode, our Witch of the Week is Resting Sadface, who commented on our American Psycho video and said, I feel like American Psycho is the best example of why we can't have nice things. So true. I said that. That's me, Zeba, editorializing. It makes it satire of men and misogyny so obvious, and we have turned the main villain to a Sigma idol. This is what I think whenever people say movies should be more ambiguous. That's very much what we had to say on the episode as well. Like, they really hit you over the head with it. And I, I'm glad that other people feel gaslit and bamboozled. I think that was the first thing we said on that app, which was, I thought this was like a finance bro in cell film, but actually watching it, it was so obviously for the girls. And I don't know how, how we, we strayed so far. Please, everyone go comment on our YouTube videos. Do you know we're on YouTube? Yeah. Have us playing in the background of your workday, like resting sad face. And I like your little icon. Um, I hope that that is a drawing of you. Resting sad face is low-key, I'm so gorgeous. (laughs) (laughs) 
yeah appropriate for the episode i hope that though you have a resting sad face you're very happy and good things are happening to you in life you deserve all the wonderful things and you are worthy of a excellent and happy life with all the amazing things the world has to offer lots of love Friendly reminder that we are also on Patreon. For £1 a month, you gain access to our Discord. For £3 a month, you get to hear a cut discussion from our main episodes. And for £5, you get all that, plus the opportunity to pick our themes, films, and discussion points. Please support us. Any contribution helps. It really holds up a lot. I think um, with current parasocial celebrity trends and the obsession with celebrity culture and their identity, who they're dating, and everything. This movie is kind of more relevant than ever. In the 90s, for sure, there was still a lot of celebrities who had huge fandoms like Britney Spears and Michael Jackson and Janet Jackson and Destiny Child. But like now you have so many different people who have large fandoms, and it's not necessarily people you'd expect. It's not just your global superstars is also like your indie actors like Paul Mescal or something where there's just a group of women who or people who just kind of imprint on them and really follow their every move and there's update channels for like every actor so I think this movie is kind of more relevant than ever um I think it should be required viewing before people get onto the internet because subcultures and feeling overly invested in people's lives and also, just like the aspect of control between the fan and their idol is quite scary to me. I think this film kind of handles that well. And the fact that there's a relationship of wanting to protect the person, like we do see with the person who is me mania and help, they end up being very close to Mima. But there's also the aspect of wanting to hurt them and destroy their lives if they're not doing what you want them to do and I think we see that so much online with like canceling of celebrities by fans when they're disappointed in them or like digging up dirt on them or something and that is all very much shown in this film this film is film cell core but it's also just like chronically online people core yeah and those things overlap a lot I feel like the particularities of how we imagine femcel are labeled these films now like do have aspects of like being i don't know deeply online and in the 90s like if you were in a subculture and you were like on the message boards and on the blogs and shit like that like you were deep in it even in like the scene where she's like this is your computer like she's being introduced to computers surely she could not have known like the depths to which people are freaks on the world wide web she didn't even know how to turn that shit on yeah i think it goes from like she goes quite from flattered or intrigued by the blog to like very quickly disturbed i think there is it's it's kind of it's kind of depressing to watch in retrospect because she's like oh the internet i've heard of that and it's that it's like oh my god this was the beginning of all of that and yeah you're right it's like it was very weirdly prophetic for like how the internet would be would soon interact with fame and and stuff like that. Like, I don't think up until like when we were kids, like, which was um, early 2000s on the internet, uh, it was like people, we had to be like taught, like not to put your address and stuff and like not to reveal too much about yourself. Like, I remember learning that quite late relative to when the internet was introduced to us. So it's, it's a very kind of it does a good job of cap. I mean, not intentionally. Couldn't have known. It would have been a huge, huge, but huge thing. But people put more of themselves online than ever. Like, they might not be putting their address, but they are vlogging their whole fucking day. I don't think people realize how easy that is. Like, when you're saying, oh, I just ordered takeout from this Thai spot near my house. And then, like, saying what the restaurant is on camera and then putting that onto the internet. People can figure out where you live. And like your routine by you doing daily vlogging or like your apartment from your window view. There's like so many things you have to be careful with because the internet is just, people are very capable of being so close to you while being so far away from you. I don't think I really understood it until more recently. Like I made my Instagram private like in the last like two years, I think. Cause I was like, oh my God, there's like so much information about me on my Instagram and like not, not everyone should be able to see that. So I think this film was like, yeah, depressingly prophetic 
in in its own way. Um, and I know that somebody it was a blog, all the anime, and they said that quote Mima is flamed for dirtying her public image, and it foreshadows the notorious apology video by AKB48 singer Minami Minigishi in 2013 after she committed the crime of being seen with a boyfriend. And for an 18-year-old film, Perfect Blue is impressively topical. That was – I don't know when that blog was put out. Um, I guess when it was 18 years old. But yeah, I thought that was um, interesting and the fact that it mirrored it. And I know that like all these pop idols have a, a lot of excruciating pressure for their public image as well. And there is a kind of infantilization in that image. I think kind of sexist or like kind of weirdly – yeah, like I said, infantilized gaze on like pop idols. And you can see that in like their outfits, which partly is like just anime style of like how it depicts women, but partly is like just indicative of real life pop idols as well, who I think dress like it's kind of that like Catholic schoolgirl or aesthetic or just schoolgirl aesthetic. There is something like there's a, there is a comment, a profound comment in this film on like innocence and self-image and and what taints it and how fame taints it it's interesting though that like they do posit pop idolism as like separate from acting like acting seems to be the thing that corrupts it i don't think that real life distinction exists so much i think actually pop idols and of themselves and pop groups and pop culture can have like extreme pressures and sexism in in the group like i wouldn't put a di- i wouldn't make a dichotomy between like hollywood and and singing in the music industry I think they're all (laughs) insidious and exploitative so that was like my only thing that wasn't exactly clear but it was um still a good commentary on it as a whole on like how women are exploited I guess I'm thinking more about like fame and corruption and like where the turn happens and the infantilization point as well like a pop idol in particular because I think a lot of stands I thought it was interesting that the crowd was mostly men um in in the shots i i don't know if that is realistic or not realistic like when i think about who would be going to that type of show i'm imagining like teens to young adults and like maybe maybe some men but like i think mostly women like i think i associate stand culture with women so i thought it was interesting that the crowd shots were all these men but i think that that was a kind of like foreshadowing as to like you know these men are about to eat you alive girl like in any industry like they're here for something that you're offering which is this like young girl in a short skirt this kind of like schoolgirl type of fantasy that you're providing which I do not think is desexualized like what I saw in those moments like yes it's way different than a nude photo shoot or a rape scene or whatever she was doing later in her career when she decides to like change it up but I still saw her as being like there's still perverts looking at you and me mania is obsessed with her in her idol form and in her innocent quote unquote innocent form and in her infantilized form right like he gets upset when she becomes more explicitly sexual because i think that it's a reaction to her in his mind i guess kind of like having control of her own sexuality and being ex- like exploited by men as a result of it like what Ty is saying about like fans turning on you when you behave in a way that is unexpected or out of character in their eyes of like who you should be. And in, in Mimania's eyes, it was this like perfect infantilized, you know, teen kind of teeny bop idol figure. The second, I, I think the figure that comes to mind for me is always Miley Cyrus. Uh, like, when she did that like Vogue photo shoot with Ann Leibovitz, I cannot believe Ann Leibovitz got behind a camera and photographed a, a minor like that like she okay she stands behind it fine she's an adult fine I, that push to be like I don't want to be the teen idol anymore I don't want to be the Hannah Montana I'm going to do I mean it wasn't a nude photo shoot but she was wrapped in a sheet her makeup was like smeared her she was nude but she was like wrapped in a sheet and she was not 18 yet I think at the time I don't know if she was 17 or maybe even 16 like I understand wanting to turn away from the the pressures of the like perfect pop idol, but there's you know the swing. We can get to like I don't want to get to the Sinead O'Connor thing. I can't. I it's 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 too much to unpack there. But like, like that is my point of reference for like that switch and the way that people got angry at her. I think now as an adult, 
in my mid-20s looking at that, thinking about what it was like to be 16 years old. If I was in front of like the one of the world's most famous photographers about to be on, was it Vogue or Vanity Fair, about to be on the cover of like of a magazine, I would be excited. I would feel grown up. I would, and like she doesn't regret it, but I'm sure there's somebody like Mima in the world who does, who like does feel like teenagehood, girlhood is so precious. You need not wrap yourself in a sheet yet. Do it later, girl. Like, that's fine. Like, I love I love a little nude photo shoot. But I think there is, like, such a tense dichotomy between owning your sexuality and being young. And we've talked about this a lot before. But something about fem cells itches that part of my brain as well when it turns to regret and anger and violent outbursts as like oh fuck I lost control over my body over my sexuality over my agency like I think there's something about like the fear of losing control that turns into fem cell behavior and of course we see this with the agent later on where she like misses her innocent pop idol days and starts to develop whatever um, psychosis that she has I can't say exactly what that is maybe like multiple personalities or something Whatever is going on with her, I think, is rooted in sex and control and perfection and obsession, all of that. It's a great movie. It's tea, for real. A great example of kind of what happens in this film is Ginny from Blackpink was like heavily criticized for being in the idol because of the content of that show, despite the fact that she didn't do anything in it like all she did was like a vaguely sexy routine and say the word fuck I think obviously I didn't watch that show so I can't speak much on it from what I know she wasn't on the show that much and she didn't have any nudity or any sex scenes or anything but she was heavily criticized by the South Korean public for being on the show and saying that she was cheapening her image her fans seemed to really defend her being on the show and it wasn't coming from her fans but the general public felt like being on this show was really degrading for her image and that she shouldn't have been on something with all the sex and drugs and everything but from like a general perspective despite my own feelings about Sam Levinson or that show it seemed like a great opportunity Euphoria is a a massive tv franchise thing it's not a franchise but whatever it's its own animal at the moment and it's launched some huge careers so I can see why she would have wanted to take on that type of role with Mima in the case of this film, Tavi Jeminson wrote an article for The Cut about Britney Spears when the Britney Spears doc came out about Britney Spears not having the control. And so why would she think she could have the control? And this film kind of reminds me of that. And one of the things that she says in it is talking about, as Zeba was just saying about Miley Cyrus being photographed when she was underage. Tavi recounts that she was about to start a play in New York called This Is Our Youth. And she takes a photo lying with her head propped up on her hand wearing a vintage houndstooth romper that a friend had just given her with her arms and legs bare. And she's pouting with like heavily lined eyes and her hair straight. And she's laying across the bed. And she was just kind of eager to shed the ideal of being the girl with huge glasses and showed that she was an adult. But now in hindsight, she realizes how sexualized she was in this image as an 18-year-old girl having a male photographer have her laying across a bed and how she was um, sexually abused in a relationship that she was in with someone who was much older than her when she was 18. And just in general, how young women in these spaces are kind of taught that you have power when people are asking you to do things like nude scenes or nude photo shoots. And they position is, oh, you have something to gain from this and the other person doesn't have anything. And I think that's the way that the sexual assault scene is framed to her. This will give you a bigger role, like you'll have a bigger start in the industry, you'll get a leg up. But in actuality, she doesn't have the control in the scenario and it's being offered to her because of people wanting to see her in that scenario. She doesn't have the power in this. She's being exploited. And she's being exploited by someone who's supposed to be looking out for her interests. And I think that's just a feeling that's so familiar, not just to people who are pop idols or actors or actresses, but also just in the workplace in general, I think, or just in general, like a, a experience of people who don't have as much power frequently when you're offered things, or sometimes in a relationship, maybe you think that you have some sort of power, and then when you look back in hindsight, you realize maybe you were exploited or you were mistreated. And also with the comment about there being a bunch of male fans in the audience, 
that's actually pretty common for our girl groups in like South Korea and Japan. But the one of the things that people say often is like, if you have more female fans than male fans, then your career will be longer because the men will leave. Like if you get a boyfriend and have like a dating scandal or if you age or like you gain weight or something or you dye your hair color, they don't like, they'll just leave. I think both of what you guys just said is really interesting. I was saying how I was confused by this film putting, positing the music industry in opposition with the acting industry as like one's innocent, one's exploitative when in fact I think they're both. But I think you kind of both have like pointed out some stuff in the sense that you're right, Taya, in the sense that there's an equal amount of control or like if we're talking about male exploitation, there's an equal amount of male exploitation in the music industry. It's like, but you're right in the sense that we don't see it because everything's relayed via metaphor and a lyric whereas you're not seeing like we, we weren't necessarily seeing what was happening to Britney Spears unless it was like in the tabloids and stuff but you know what I mean like you're not seeing how much people have control over her because you're only seeing like a five minute performance where she like makes out with someone with a snake you know like it's someone Madonna <laughs> but um you know what I mean it's like a kind of you don't get as much insight whereas the actor is like very obviously acting out like if it's a male director then a male director's fantasy don't necessarily see how singers might be acting out a male producer or music producer's fantasy in the same way so brian eggert for deep focus review he talks about how the crowd appears as faceless in an image that might seem lazy and i quote if not for what it says about fandom and the memorable moment when um Mania holds up his hand so it appears as though mima is dancing in his palm is an iconic image rendered without overstylized flair. So there is a kind of stylistic comment in how the crowd's being depicted as well as like mostly male, like this kind of faceless mass and also the kind of puppetry imagery of like trying to control her. Okay, I will say I had to look up at the end of this movie what the fuck just happened because there is a lot of... Um, in, in addition to the stylistic choices of the animation, there is a lot of playing with the audiences like you i think it's meant to make us feel crazy as well because like there's this blurring between reality especially when she starts acting and she's on the show between reality and fiction and that line gets blurred you know about halfway through the film especially after the rape scene where she like cannot tell if she's still filming a show like she'll do an action and then all of a sudden like the lights are on the cameras there's an audience there's directors and then that sort of cuts out and then we realize it it might not have been Mima at all it, it might have been Rumi imagining that she was Mima imagining that she was on the show but she was actually killing people or was she actually killing people like there's a lot of um back and forth between who whose perspective is this even what is actually happening versus what is imagined or dreamed in some cases and what is the show and what is uh, real events and I thought it was really well done like it is maddening and I think it is done so on purpose I was watching this thing being like well who's the femme cell like wh where's the femme cell in this like it, it takes a while for the ruby reveal to come and then you're like oh this is not a movie about Mima even really at all this is a movie about Rumi and I just wondered like what did y'all think of her as a character and were you following? Did the reveal shock you and like bring things? Because so, for me, it like brought everything into perspective. Like it, this didn't really hit home for me as a fem cell movie until I understood who Rumi was, where she was. Because even that she used to be a pop idol is kind of a throwaway line. Like if you miss it, it's kind of unclear why she feels the way she does so strongly about Mima switching from a music career to an acting career I mean, obviously she's protective of her as a as an agent but or as a manager I'm not really sure what her role is but she has this emotional distress that goes so far beyond a professional one so much so that it drives her to psychosis and I don't know I just want to know what your thoughts were on her as a character and do, do you think she is the femme cell I guess is my question I think it's interesting what films get absorbed in the femme cell canon and I think she, I can see why. I think she's more sympathetic than um, other figures because I think there's, it's almost like she more just wants to reject like 
that image but at the same time she shames Mima for her sexuality with like the kind of because the things like Mima's alter or double or doppelganger should we say says to her are things like you're filthy now and stuff so she becomes sexist in her own right and that is very femme cell but also I felt more sympathetic towards her in her kind of almost maternal protectiveness of of Mima like she's not straightforward hatred also there's the equation of like she's obviously mad Appar- apparently both the characters are suffering from um folie deux which is according to wikipedia folie of two or madness shared by two so it's like a shared psychosis so they're both i think the film's so confusing because you are seeing Mima lose her mind in the sense that she's having visions but she can't see that those visions are actually Rumi and Rumi's having the uh, the stared psychosis and that she also believes that she's like, there's a double. So it's like a kind of weird uh, plurality to to like the, the chaos and the hallucinations that's happening. But yeah, no, I can see why it's femcel. I think it's more, she's more of a sympathetic femcel to me because she does, as someone who was previously in the industry, there does seem to be that protectiveness. That's why it feels like more of a betrayal at the end. Like, oh no, come on. You were you were like helping her the whole time. You were meant to be the safe person, like the only other woman present. I trusted you kind of thing. So I did, I did feel quite betrayed by it, but also sympathetic because she's clearly like lost it. Um, it didn't seem so much about like what we kind of said earlier in the conversation about, or you said, I think, Kaya, about replacement and stuff. It didn't even really necessarily feel as much focus on like Rumi wanting to go back to her glory days or fear of Rumi being replaced which seems weird because it seems like that film would have lent itself to make that commentary of like female competitiveness but it more just seemed like a woman lost in psychosis I guess that is the undercurrent the like that's happening that jealousy charge into why she'd want to embody Mima she wants to relive her youth but it didn't necessarily land i didn't really get a tone of female competitiveness in it did you, i wonder if you did if that was rung more strongly for you i mean i understand that could be the motivation of like why she tortures mima because ultimately she does um i think we were using male edges for me mania so that like when we got to this character and started to discuss the reveal it was more of a, a shock but i think being the person who torments another woman for failing to be the image that you have of her to uphold or being like as you you have in the notes like going from wearing pink to wearing red and the ideal of purity versus being like a tainted woman by being on the show or even like the anger for her accepting the role that has the rape scene which is quite traumatic for her I think all of that control is also rooted in a, a sort of misogyny in which like Rumi is obsessed with Mima and wants to be her but probably because I think she sees Mima as the person who has replaced her because Rumi was a pop idol in the past and still in her mind thinks that she is and sees Mima ceasing to be so as her destroying both of their dreams and both of their fantasy and so like that desire to control her makes her act out in a way of like misogyny and punishing her and torturing her through this online forum and being so close to her and knowing her thoughts and knowing exactly how to get to her and, like, the way that I think she goes about torturing her is, like, so specific to things that she knew would get to her, like, describing her life in first person in such explicit detail that she would doubt her reality. Like, she's essentially gaslighting her, and she gaslights her into psychosis. And I think that is, like, something that we associate with incel behavior, like, the gaslighting, the torturing her online, the policing her image, the being angry about her changing from being... Uh, pop idol in schoolgirl skirts to being like an adult woman who's decided she wants to buy a different career path. I think all of that is very much incel culture. It's just being done by a woman, which is why I would say she is the femcel character in the movie. But I struggle in this case to wonder who are people identifying with in this film? Are they sympathetic towards Rumi and how she treats Mima because of like their own thoughts about how other women necessarily, I guess, disappoint them or give into the patriarchy or do things that they don't necessarily support? Or are they sympathetic towards Mima for going through this horrific torture, like gaslighting and mental abuse from someone who was her manager and supposed to be a very close friend? I'm just, I'm wondering who they're sympathizing with and are people actually identifying with Rumi's character? I think, yeah, I think you're identifying with 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 Mima in this. 
But I still thought there was something kind of sympathetic about Rumi at the end. Like, it's just sad, really. But I think you're supposed to identify with Mima. I did think you really connect with her well, especially during the rape scene. I was like, oh my God, it's an animation, but it, it still had the same, not necessarily, maybe not the same, but it still had a pretty powerful effect and how gruesome that was. It was interesting how he makes it, Khan makes it seem like obvious that it's fiction because he has him call cut and like, you know, stuff like that. And they interrupt the, the scene to make it clear that it's staged, but it's interesting that it has like the similar kind of effect. And then of course there is the attempted rape scene later on, uh, imagined a real, I think that is real. And so I think like all of that goes to quite clearly construct Mima as the victim here. If we got a bit meta, do you think this film exploits Mima too? I think no. I think no, because what you were saying about the rape scene, it's an animated fictional rape scene, right? Like it's fictional in the context of it, but it still has the effect of making us empathize with her. Like in the end, I don't, I don't know that a lot of people would empathize with Rumi. I think we actually should. I think if anything, it's exploitative of Rumi more than it is of Mima. Um, and I, 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 the scene that actually like kind of rubbed me the wrong way, but I understand the effect that it was trying to make was when she shows up in the idol outfit and she looks, she just like looks so different in it than Mima does, right? Because she's bigger than her, because she's older than her, because you know, she, we're sort of meant, to, it's, it reminded me of our hag episode where we're sort of meant to look like she's past her prime. And that felt a little bit yucky to watch. And because this is animated, everything is so deliberate about the choices of how people look um, in particular, right? Because the men all look so disgusting and like, like they're monsters. They're, they're really fucking freaky looking. So I think that to, to have Rumi in that moment, it felt like an element of the horror like her in that dress looked like an element of body horror in the way that other scenes in this movie were body horror and that was like that was hard for me to digest a little bit because I don't I don't want to view her that way and I that felt exploitative to me more so even than you know looking at you know nude scenes for example like the photo shoot like I feel like I can look at a real or animated nude woman and not f I don't feel like a pervert for looking at a nude body I'm like that is nudity I know what women's bodies look like but something about that like the intentionality of of animation in particular I have to like I have to read it with more intent than like a casting choice do you know what I mean I yeah and that's that's an effect of the medium which I think is interesting the reason why I did question who are people identifying with that makes this a fin cell film. Obviously, I think Rumi's character is the fin cell within the film, but I do think this film is kind of made into the canon of fin cell films online, and it's kind of made it up there with Gone Girl. And we know why Gone Girl is on that list um, for this speech, but I feel like there that there are people who find a lot of characteristics about Rumi relatable. And I kind of, I don't know, that kind of makes me sad. Like, I feel bad for her character in a way because she's clearly, like, mentally unwell. But I also am, like, concerned by how many, how much, I don't want to say competition because I said that last episode, but, like, how much fear there is in replacement by, like, younger women or women in the same profession. Like, that makes me very sad. I think it's very prevalent in every industry. But in this film, like, the extent that she goes to to really harm Mima's mental health makes me a bit uneasy that I think people do identify with that character. And I think they identify with it in a way that, like, I think we've seen people do this type of stuff online to different people in different news cycles, like when people thought Sydney Sweeney had an affair with Glenn Powell, whatever, and they, like, put up videos of her with the other woman about the Lana Del Rey song and how people attacked Hailey Bieber or whatever like there's always some woman getting attacked on the internet no matter what is going on it'll be like her boyfriend cheated on her or something and then there are people in the comments being like oh my god like why are you lying saying he cheated on you if it's like a prominent male celebrity or something there's just like a, a level of I think hatred against other women that is 
prevalent within this type of thing because it's like one it's the replacement thing and also it's the anger of people who you deem as being going against like feminism by performing femininity or being in relationships with men or whatever it may be and Mima's character I guess is being perceived as doing that by going along with the role for them and doing the scene with the male director and taking taking on acting instead of singing and ignoring her fans and losing the opportunity that Rumi deems is like very valuable because she's like at the top of her pop girl career and that to me is like I don't know that is just very unsettling I think that people can identify with that character I think like having empathy is very different from identifying with but based on I think a lot of actions that I've seen online or heard about in articles and stuff recently I think there is an identification with the character that kind of scares me I think sometimes Femsel Femsel core just sometimes encompasses like violence against men misandry basically and I think that's more of like what people focus on rather than attributing it to idealizing Rumi I would say in this like in the film because you only you only get like two seconds of Rumi actually being the femme cell really before she's like thrown into the institution. For most of the time, you're thinking that it's like her, uh, it's Mima doing it, right? So I don't know. I think it's just like the <laughs> imagery of like men dying, which is what makes this more femme cell core for like, or like what people identify with of like what femme cell, quote unquote, femme cell aesthetic viewers uh, might be liking about it. But not all rape revenge movies are femme cell movies like there is something about this that is like unique there's lots of you know we've covered a bunch of them that are that are rape revenge movies that's something i think core to a lot of monstrous feminine horror so there's something unique about this that is getting femme cells all hype and you know the rest of the movies that we covered it is difficult yeah i don't know it's kind of a nebulous thing to try to pin down as to why subculture has absorbed a film into it but back to the, like, does Khan as, like, an anime movie director exploit Mima? I thought Brian Egger, again, for Deep Focus Review, had an interesting take. Um, he comments on the male orientation of Khan's visual treatment um, of Mima in Perfect Blue. And I quote here, he says, even as he critiques how Mima is objectified and, and infantilized by those around her, Khan takes part in her objectification by cutting in abrupt, fragmentary images of Mima's breasts and pubic hair in the mix. It's a characteristic of Perfect Blue and entire and the entire subgenre of anime, including comic high school romances, body horror, mecha hentai, and others, which create a set of representational contradictions about identity and female agency. And yet, Khan's films often feature female protagonists, but none have been so sexualized as Mima. He told the Washington Post, quote, I am a man. If I should decide to have a young man as a central figure in the movie, that I would know that young man too well. Having a different gender person as the main character, I personally want to know more about that main character. End quote. Khan owns up to his interest in Mima, an interest that extends beyond her identity crisis and into a sexual fascination from a male point of view. His film's paranoia about being watched supplies a worthy condemnation of these male-dominated models of looking and exploiting. Still, it falls into a familiar paradox of representation that perpetuates the very thing it seeks to expose. Wow. I would not have... Okay, when you ask the question of if it's meta, I would not have said that un- until the director himself was like, yeah, I gotta think for Mima as well. Like, you ain't had to say that, bro. <laughs> yeah, I, he could have got away with it. <laughs> Uh, well, to be fair, that that was not a direct quote from the Washington Post. I'm quoting Brian Eggert from Deep Focus Review, who's quoting the Washington Post. So I'd have to go analyze the original source material to comment on that. But I did think, it, I mean, I did particularly in those moments where it sh- shows, it splices. I know exactly the scene he's talking about where it splices the photographs later on. Not necessarily when the photography's happening. I mean, when it comes back, like in her flashback, it did seem a little gratuitous. I thought on the point of voyeurism though, I love a, I always love a meta situation where the voyeur gets their eyes stabbed out. I thought that was like, I thought that was potentially the femme so core as well of like male gaze, stab, you know, like, like that kind of subversive or yeah, subversive or maybe a reclamation of her self image. 
bar the one who dies via explosion. I think all the victims have their eyes stabbed out in this, actually. Oh, I didn't even notice that. That's true. Stop looking. You're peeping Toms. you peepers. I think one reason why this sort of genre really tends to connect with stem cell audiences is because from what I understand to some extent, while incel stuff is mainly based in like forced celibacy, that's what I'm looking for. Uh, Fem cells are more like they choose not to have sex with men because they think that men don't value women and kind of use them as like Not Taya, please, it's so graphic. <laughs> and you said that in your silky honey voice too, as if it was the most innocent phrase. You're talking about I feel like we have to bleep that out. It's inappropriate. And I think that belief um, really connects with like uh, rape revenge stories because in essence, like there with sexual assault, there is power and there's also domination and there is also like using someone's body against their will. And I think the the reoccurring theme of women being used and their bodies being mistreated is some and then being punished for it through death or mutilation is something that really ties into their ideology of men only use women for sexual things and don't respect us or treat us like other humans and so i think those two things kind of go hand in hand and maybe that's why people like this film that is more of a modern fem cell take though because the original fem cells is tied to the original incels would have been like people don't have sex with me rather than like a choice right what did you guys think of the ending like the very, very end where she looks in the mirror and she's like, no, I'm real. I'm I'm the real thing. Or is that what she says? Something like that. I'm the real thing. I think she just says, no, I'm real. I don't know. Maybe, but we're also watching a dub, right? So I don't know. I thought it was really funny. I thought it was like, I, it, it kind of made me laugh because I guess up until that point, if you didn't understand that there was this identity confusion then maybe that would be the reveal for you in the literal last line of the movie but i think if you at some point picked up that there was this multiple personality or like switching of identities going on she literally switches their room like you should realize by that point her turning to the camera literally breaking the fourth wall looking at us and saying yep i'm the real one like it is kind of it's almost like comedic to me paul lay for bloody disgusting says that while like Rumi remains trapped in their desired image, while Mima is grateful to see only herself, no, I'm real, she says in the film's last seconds, indicating she now believes in herself. This confidence is what finally ends the overlapping of reality and fantasy. That was one interpretation. But then back to the Deep Focus review, Brian Eggert says, Mima's choice to continue acting after this ordeal feels like she's learned nothing. Then again, Khan's curtailing of Mima and her final note of uncertainty and self-destructive ambition might also be an accurate, tragic reflection of stardom. Although Khan introduces the problem of representation by how he depicts his condemnation of the troubled relationship between public and private spaces, Perfect Blue remains thought-provoking and undeniably powerful, if not entirely emotionally satisfying. Nevertheless, it remarks about entertainment culture, celebrity worship, virtual environments, and toxic fandom supply an incisive prophecy about how these factors continue to invade every aspect of our lives. Obviously, that was more of an overall review, but it's interesting that that review implied that it was not an empowering decision. But I think it would have been less empowering for her to like quit the industry. I think the reclamation of her image would be better. But it's also, it's like a tricky thing because like in staying with it, it is like meaning that, you know, that graphic sexual violence scene did help launch her career in some way. But then that's just more of a sad reality of the industry rather than her personal failing. I do agree with the end part of that review and like what this film does and accomplishes. I didn't actually know this until I was like digging into it, but um Obviously, there are accusations from fans of anime and this film in particular that Black Swan is like very closely related to this film in, in its plot and in its visuals. So Aronofsky and Khan have a kind of his interesting history in that 
Aronofsky never succeeded, but he did at one point, there were conversations about potentially buying the rights to Perfect Blue to like do a live action. And that was way before Black Swan. So in his previous film, Requiem for a Dream, there's a remake, which is an exact remake of a scene, the bathtub scene from Perfect Blue. And then Aronofsky and Khan actually went for dinner. And according to Animation Obsessive, which is a blog, I'm going to quote here. Aronofsky was overjoyed and he said, I will never forget the meal I had with Satoshi Khan in Tokyo. He was incredibly generous and warm. For a fan, it was a huge thrill, he later wrote. He said that he asked Khan, what do you think of like the tub shot? And he said he was very proud. So it was great. It was a lot of fun to have that connection with him. But that con in like later blog posts revealed that he viewed the conversation a bit differently. And he said, when I was told upon meeting him that he was a fan, he wrote on his blog, all I could do was respond with a vague smile that Japanese people are good at. Regarding the shot, Khan broached the subject by telling Aronofsky, I was a little embarrassed to see scenes in Requiem that I had seen somewhere before. And Aronofsky replied that he was paying homage. And then according to No No Film School, Aronofsky remembers reaching out to Khan for permission to use similar shots for Requiem for a Dream, but that Khan had not mentioned ever being contacted by Aronofsky. He thought that he was paying like too much homage, basically. And also according to Animation Obsessive, Khan wrote in 2001 after he met with Aronofsky, I'm feeling pathetic. It's a pitiful tale when the person being paid homage to has less name recognition, less social credibility and less budget to spend. That was obviously just for Requiem for a Dream, but then Black Swan would have came out and actually Khan died beforehand. But many people have noted that there are a lot of similarities to the point where Aronofsky himself has like denied that he says there are similarities between Perfect Blue and Black Swan, but that it wasn't an influence and that they were just trying to recreate the Black Swan story, basically. I think that's potentially wild to claim if you actually think about the similarities. Like, There are broad similarities, sure, like rising pressure of fame, mental health, female sexual exploitation, like the art or performance mirroring reality. Like that's all very broad, but like the name Mima and Nima, Nina, the projected delusion onto another person. There's scenes that are really similar, like the talking photos on the wall appear in both. Um, The reflection of like a mirror, a reflection or a mirror, like turning and talking to the main character. The fact that both Nina dies with like a sharp, a sharp like mirror shard when during her final performance and that Rumi dies like by collapsing over a, a like glass shard. Well, when you put it like that, I totally was not on board. I was like, reach, vaguely similar. And then like listing all the ways that I'm like, oh, actually, there's mounting evidence. I, I do believe it is... um heavy-handed homage to the point of light plagiarism yeah i think that was my conclusion too in the sense of like oof. but my personal take is that all filmmakers pay homage to absolutely everyone it's also nice to see pockets of other people's work in media and i think it would be very dull if we didn't and especially horror is self-referential too right like and that's all fun but i think we could compare this treatment potentially to like how i think jordan peele is really honest about his anime influences in like nope Like, for example, you cannot Google Nope and not find Jordan Peele in an interview mention that he was paying homage or paying tribute to Akira, although he's claimed that he wasn't inspired by Perfect Blue. But I think that's hard for him to see as he'd like admittedly said that he was he had paid homage to Perfect Blue in his previous film. You know, like that's kind of wild to say, no, I wasn't influenced by it. And I'm like, you are a fan. You like this film. And there are a few quite a few overlapping points. Um, or quite a few similar points, especially when they're like borrowing from other cultures and bringing it to a live action, big Hollywood like movie. And that he wanted to make a live action version of it. That to me is the most telling. I'm like, so you made like, I don't know, a a different version of what you wanted to do a live action of. And just set it in a different context. Yeah. I'm not necessarily trying to accuse Aronofsky of plagiarism. I just think it's more of a comment on how directors in the West should pay, should give more credit to their, to the films that inspire them from elsewhere. And it exposes people to, to other movies that they might not have watched. Like, I don't think fans of Black Swan, which didn't win an Oscar, like Oscar winner Black Swan aren't necessarily have ever seen or heard of perfect blue and it would be cool if they got the opportunity to be exposed to other people's work 
Exactly. And like I said, Con wasn't even alive to really make the judgment on it. Um, this is his fans that have picked him up, given the history with Requiem for a Dream and Perfect Blue already. Thank you for listening to The Monstrous Feminine. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, SoundCloud and Spotify at The Monstrous Feminine Podcast and on Twitter at The Monfem Pod. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and follow us on TikTok at The Monstrous Feminine Pod for podcast clips and more fun. Brooms up, witches out. <laughs>